When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Trapagan. And I'm John Kegg. And we are your hosts for this ongoing exploration into the nature and experience of intellectual humility and the value of screwing up. So today we're joined by Marshall Poe, founder and CEO of the New Books Network. Marshall, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I pr- I prefer uh, custodian of the New Books Network. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Okay>. CEO. <laughs> yeah. So that means you're always cleaning up, right? Yeah. Well, yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yes, I do a lot of cleanup. Well, why don't we actually begin with um, some information on our guest. Marshall, can you tell us a bit about your background, maybe the intellectual path that you've taken to get to where you're, what you're doing now and uh, I certainly, from what I've seen and known talking to you, it, it, I think it's had some interesting turns. Yeah, I've had a very unusual career. People ask me uh, what I'm doing, and I always tell them that when I figure it out, I'll tell them, and they, they will be the first to know. I uh, started, at, I was a kid from Kansas, and I wanted to be Michael Jordan or Larry Bird, and that didn't work out very well, although I continued to play basketball for a long time, and I had the good fortune of going to Grinnell College. Um through a weird connection. Uh, but I ended up there and I met a man named Dan Kaiser. He was my advisor and mentor at Grinnell and he was a Russian historian and I was very impressed by him. And so I, uh, he encouraged me and I said, I want to do what Dan Kaiser does. And so I became a, a medieval early modern historian, um, which may not have been the best career move. I, I got into it just as the Soviet Union was becoming India. <laughs> and and so the amount of money that went into uh, Soviet and Russian studies was declining. Um, I got my PhD in 1991, and then I taught at various places uh, for many years and wrote quite widely on um, early modern Russian history. And I founded a journal, Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian Studies, uh, which was a uh, real adventure. It's still around, and I I think it's well thought of. And then at some point, I got very interested in popular dissemination of serious ideas. And so, again, through another very odd connection, I got a job at The Atlantic Magazine uh, in about 2001. And I worked there for uh, five or six years, uh, where I learned many things about how Uh, Serious ideas are disseminated to the public. Uh, The Atlantic is a big magazine, big national magazine. Um, And uh, one of the things I discovered was essentially that a print might not be the best way to reach people with serious intellectual ideas or research. Um, Then I went back to academia in another weird connection, and I was a professor at the University of Iowa starting in 2007. And it was there, uh, while I was teaching various things, that I founded a podcast called New Books in History in 2007, just to see if people would listen um, to academics talk about 
their books. And they did, not in great numbers. But uh, a lot of people started to contact me, uh, not a lot of people, but some people, and they would say, why isn't there new books in philosophy? Why isn't there new books in gender studies? Why isn't there new books in East Asian studies? And I uh, like to say that if I would have had a good answer to that question, I would still be a professor. Uh, I did not have a good answer to that question. So uh, we, or I, launched the New Books Network in about 2010. Um, and the, the network grew organically. And eventually I decided I wasn't really doing the people of Iowa the good service that they were paying me to do. And so I resigned my professorship there to work on the New Books Network full time. And from that point, uh, I simply managed the growth of the network um, for a period of seven or eight years. And it, at that point, it really wasn't economically sustainable in the sense that I was funding everything with my day jobs. I can talk about that. Uh, they were many and varied. And then in about mm, 2017, 2018, uh, the situation changed in podcasting and it became possible to make the entire enterprise sustainable, which has really always been my goal because I think we provide a good public service. Our mission is public education. And we do connect people with experts and we do it through audio and uh, I think we do it very well. I can tell you that we just topped 3 million downloads a month. We have an audience of about 750,000 people. And, you know, these are mostly books about monographs. I mean, they're mostly interviews about monographs. And this is a very unusual thing. It, it turns out that people are actually quite interested in this material. And I'm very grateful to the hosts on the network, of whom there are about 600. And then all the people that we've had on, again, most of whom are researchers, there have been we publish over 12,000 episodes now. They're all available on the New Books Network website for free, and that's the way they're going to remain so that everybody all over the world can get them. And uh, that's really all I do now. I, I am, I'm the custodian of the New Books Network. You, I, John is, I think, going to ask a question, but I want to jump in for a second. Oh, and he's got something beeping there. Uh, but um, no, it's all right. Um, uh, I, I can go ahead. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So this podcast is about errors, mistakes, and how the things we screw up on have a way of sort of challenging and undermining our ideas and even occasionally bruising our egos. Can you give us an example of a couple of situations, maybe a professional and maybe one personal one, where you were clearly wrong, you realized it, and you were deeply moved by the situation in one way or another? Yes, I, I volunteered to do this podcast because I did make a, a really serious error at one point. And it was in a book that I wrote called The Russian Moment in World History, which I generally think is a good book. I wish I could take the last couple of chapters out of it. So if the people at Princeton University Press are thinking about the next edition, if we could take the last couple of chapters out of it, that would be great. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the book. The book started with a kind of naive question, kind of ridiculously naive. And I, I simply wondered why uh, Russians didn't act like me. <laughs> you know, I'm an American from the Midwest and I'm generally positive guy and I believe in democracy and I believe in civil rights. And I think that if you work really hard, you can make it. We can go out there and improve the world and, you know, all this kind of American stuff. Well, all the Russians that I knew didn't believe any of these things. They're very nice folks. They were configured in every way, just like me, except they didn't have this attitude. And uh, I had seen um, 
in my own time in Russia and also through my studies of Russian history for two decades, that they really did uh, bring a different set of values and intuitions to the table. I just wondered about this, like, why are they the way they are? Why can't they, I mean, again, this will sound ridiculous, why can't they just get with the program and realize that we're not out to get them? We just want to help. Um, Again, it sounds so naive, I can't believe it. So I, I started to look into it a little bit, obviously, and I created a theory, and it was a very simple theory, and I'll explain it very briefly. Um, and that is that uh, while I was having a discussion with a Russian friend of mine, this was about 1995, and he said, if, if you want to understand Russian history and what Russians think, you have to understand this. We think the Germans are always coming. <laughs> and, I, and I thought about that. I thought, what does he mean by that? And so, you know, if you look at Russian history, uh, And the way Russians think about Russian history, it's essentially a a series of moments at which the very existence of Russia has been imperiled. And you can go way back with this. And again, I want to make a caveat before I say anything fact-based. I haven't looked at this material for a very long time, and I'm speaking in generalities, so I'm going to get some dates wrong. And uh, so be mindful of that. So you the very beginning, you know, uh, the Russian state was founded by Vikings in the ninth century, supposedly. These people were not East Slavs. They were Vikings, which is to say they were Scandinavian. Viking was kind of a job description. Um, then in the 13th century, the Mongols invaded and conquered Russia. And if you jump forward to the 16th century, the Polish-Lithuanian state invaded Russia. Then a bit later, the Poles invaded in what in, in what? The Russians call the time of troubles. I mean, in American history, we don't have a period called the time of troubles. <laughs> you know, we think about, you know, Washington and cherry trees and things like this and Lincoln emancipating the slaves. It's all good news. So then after the, um, after the Poles and the Swedes invaded, uh, you can jump forward. The Swedes did it again at the beginning of the 18th century. You can jump forward to the 19th century, Napoleon, and we always think of Napoleon being French, but actually he led an army of many nations into Russia and burnt Moscow to the ground. You jump forward again, the Germans and the Austrians invaded Russia. I've kind of left out the Ottomans. They tried it a couple of times too. The Ottomans invaded Russia, the the, the Germans invaded Russia, and the Austrians invaded Russia uh, with catastrophic you know, catastrophic effect on the Russians. Um, And then, for God's sakes, they did it again, (laughs) the exact same way, 20, 25 years later. And they almost obliterated the place. And of course, you have the Cold War, which, you know, was pretty cold, depending on where you are in the world. But here you have the, you know, what is the most powerful nation on earth, sort of dead set in changing everything it can about Russia. And I was a part of that. you know, that the, the graduate programs I'm in were funded by the United States government in an attempt to understand the Russians, which is to say, make the Russians behave differently. You know, it's like existential threat. So the theory that I derived is essentially they were just always worried about this foreign and usually Western pressure. And if you put it in the broad terms, you think about early modern empires, there are really only two of them that made it past Western imperialism. And that was the Ottomans. They didn't make it very far. And then the Russians, the Russians actually made it. They, they are kind of a non-European power that survived uh, this, you know, incredible 400-year period of European imperialism. Every, every other 
early modern empire collapsed as a result of this. And I think, I think this deeply affected Russian mentalities. And they became very risk averse and very conservative. Um, and it gave them a kind of different set of uh, what you might call political values uh, than, than we in the United States have. If you think of the touchstones in American history, they all tend to be like, you know, one victory after another, one progress after another. In Russia, it's not like that at all. It's uh, we beat them, then we beat them, then we beat these people, and then these people came. And so they became very suspicious of all Western things. You know, the Germans are always coming. Well, sometimes the Germans come and they bring, you know, a new way to build ships or they bring you a factory that will make cars. But sometimes they come and they try to burn your village down. <laughs> so, so you really shouldn't trust the Germans. And by Germans, I mean Nemsi. And that was the way that the Muscovites thought about all Europeans. They kind of lumped them together in the same way the Ottomans would call all Europeans Franks. <laughs> they were just all Franks. <laughs> and for the for the Russians, they were just all Nemsi. You know, they were all Europeans, and they were coming to get us. And um, and so this deeply affected uh, the way in which the Russian state developed. And it affected uh, Russian political culture very deeply. And so I wrote this book uh, in about 2000, and it was published in 2003. And you remember at this time, history was ending. I don't know if you know this book by Francis Fukuyama. And, you know, we were watching things that Russian watchers hadn't seen in a long time. They were having elections, and they'd had a successful revolution, and they decided to get rid of a lot of their empire, and there were nations blooming, and they were confronting their own past in a new way. They were kind of accepting, you know, what had been done under Stalin, and it all looked very rosy. And the mistake I made was getting caught up in this. And so at the end of the book, I kind of made the prediction that uh, Russia would become something like Sweden. (laughs) <laughs> you know, kind of nice people that you can do business with and, and they'll have elections and they'll believe in, you know, uh, multi parties and they'll, you know, they'll get with the program and become like a really solid sort of Northern European state. And this is totally wrong. I mean, uh, it, there, there was a friend of mine pointed this out, uh, actually a, a good friend of mine, pointed it's like, yeah, what are you talking about? This is not going to happen. And, you know, and in hindsight, I really was caught up in this moment where I thought everything was going to change now. But of course, you know, as a historian, I can tell you that everything doesn't change. And the fact that Russia has reverted to older historical patterns uh, shouldn't be a surprise to no one, particularly someone who read this book. Because <laughs> if you read right up to the last chapters, you're like, oh, they're kind of locked in this path dependency. They're going to continue in this way, um, which is exactly what happened. Um, and again, it was entirely predictable, but I, you know, I was caught up in the optimism of liberal democracy triumphing everywhere. And this is just going to be great. We don't have to worry about these disarm. It'll be wonderful, you know, rainbows and unicorns and walks on the beach and just going to be wonderful. Um, But again, it was, it was totally wrong uh, in hindsight. And as people point out in the book now, um, so that would be the primary example I would give. And it's really a, a case of me getting caught up in this zeitgeist. I didn't realize the moment that I was in, that we were all, you know, kind of just very heady stuff for us. And it's like, oh, wow, finally, <laughs> they're with the program and everything's going to be, you know, terrific for the Russians. Yeah. So um, one question that I would have is how fast did you learn that you were wrong and how did you um, express it or admit um, your failure or your uh, inaccuracy, um, or was it slow in coming? Well, it, 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 
it wasn't particularly slow in coming. I was in Moscow when Putin was anointed. And I remember a, a Russian friend of mine said, he looks like a wolf. <laughs> He's vulpine. And I'm like, huh, what's up with that? And uh, it, it wasn't very long until I realized that this this wasn't going to happen. I was spending time in Russia and I had friends there. And, you know, I watched what was happening. And, and I realized that essentially what, what happened there, if I were to rewrite the book, is what you would expect to happen. You know, Jack Matlock, who was the last ambassador to the Soviet Union, said something to me that has stuck with me. He says, you can't ask people to do things they can't do. And so the Russian elite, after the Soviet Union collapsed, had no exit. There was no place for them to go. There wasn't going to be anything like denazification. There wasn't going to be de-Bolshevikization. They were still there and they had no good place to land. So what they did is they reverted to older forms and they essentially took control of the state, uh, which is just what you would expect them to do. You know, the North Koreans are in the same position now. Like what's the North Korean going to do if, if the shit hits the fan there? Like they have no place to go. Like there's no other option for them. Um, they have to continue do, doing what they're doing. Um, and, and so, you know, short of an absolutely catas- cata- cataclysmic um, event, w- which both the Germans and the Japanese experienced after World War II, you, you're going to see the same form uh, uh, emerge. And that's essentially what happened. I haven't in public ever really talked about this. I mean, again, I, I was in and out of academia and I turned my attention to other things after I wrote the book, but other people have contacted me and said, yeah, we love your book except for the last part, <laughs> which is just sad. <laughs> yeah, a, a question I, I, I have is, you know, you talk about this. It, it is actually interesting just from a historical perspective, because, you know, I deal with Japan and the end of the war for Japan is this, just overwhelming moment of change because the country was obliterated. I mean, the, the typical, um, the typical number is that of the 65 major cities, 62 were 90% bombed. That tells you something about where Japan was at the end of the war. But of course, Russia was not like that. I, one of the things I think anthropologists like me often find ourselves thinking is, is how difficult it is to, to predict the future and, you know, I think I'm curious, what, what do you think led you to feel like that prediction was the right prediction? Well, I, I can tell you exactly the logic okay. that I used at the time. And that, that is, I said, well, the Germans aren't coming now. But see, we don't know that. I mean, again, I, you know, I, one of the phrases that people throw around these days that drives me absolutely nuts is the right side of history. Like, we don't know what that is. I mean, does it seem inconceivable to us that Germany would ever invade Russia again? Yeah, it seems kind of inconceivable, but it kind of seemed inconceivable in 1918. We just don't know what's going to happen. And the fact of the matter is these states uh, often have conflicting interests. They have militaries. Uh, The military is always on the table. We just don't know. And, you know, I said, oh, the Germans, well, they're completely, you know, completely benign now. I mean, by Germans, I mean, Europeans, Americans, they're not going to do it. We're not going to invade Russia. That's crazy. By the way, I missed the, the fact that the United States did, in fact, invade Russia in 1919, um, so, <laughs> which every Russian will tell you. That, yeah, we don't know. Uh, uh, that These structures have a, a kind of um, momentum and and uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen in 15, 20, 30 years with 
Russia in Europe or Russia in China. We, we just don't know. And so I, I thought, well, the Germans are completely benign and we are too, <laughs> which is funny if you think about it. And so this is, you know, they don't have to worry anymore. Well, the worrying was built into the way they think, right? They weren't going to give up these habits and they. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, I think as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, Japan. And if you think of Japan in 1970 with Article 9 of their constitution, which renounces all warfare, you would think, well, they don't, you know, it says you can't have a military or anything. Of course, the U.S. imposed that on them, but they bought into it, except the government didn't really buy into it. And they live in an increasingly dangerous corner of the world. And today they have one of the most powerful militaries in the world. They just call it a self-defense force. <laughs> right. Well, that's the Germans, the Germans renamed their army to self-defense of the Wehrmacht. Yeah. That, yeah. See how that worked out. Um, but yeah, the, these structures, the nation state structure, the international system, the habits that went into its formation, the histories that people bring to it, they are uh, uh, kind of, they're not permanent because over the very long term, things can change, but not over 15 or 20 years, which is the period I was looking at from, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91 to when I published the book in 2003. Not, nothing really changed. I mean, things changed, but not really. So as a historian by training, um, you know, what, what I think you're kind of pointing at here is that the flows of history are unpredictable. There's this nonstop uncertainty, but we tend to live in a moment where we feel like we know what's going on. So we think we can predict what's happening. And to me, this points to this kind of underlying question of our, our, um, you know, podcast of intellectual or epistemic humility. And so I'm curious as a historian, how would you define intellectual humility or epistemic humility? I guess they're, they're different, but you know, how would you define these concepts? Well, I think you always have to be prepared to be wrong and you have to listen to your colleagues, other experts who know what they're talking about. Uh, this is extraordinarily important. It's, it's unfortunate that at least in the United States ex- expertise has taken it on the chin. Um, and, and I could talk a little bit about that. But, you know, when you go to a conference of, of people that study Japan or philosophers or Russia, you need to listen to your colleagues. They will correct you. It's this kind of self-correcting mechanism we have because, you know, we are part of this international community of people that have devoted themselves to finding the truth. And we're all on the same team. Uh, and, and so you need to listen carefully to your colleagues who have this same interest and, and the, the idea is to get the story, in the case of historians, get the story right. Where right means, and I'm very sort of primitive in this way, uh, I'm kind of an unreconstructed empiricist, the correspondence theory of truth, as they call it. It has to be consistent with the sources. And your colleagues will tell you when it's not. You probably should stay out of the business of predictions, at least if you're a historian. Um, other social sciences can predict, and they do it pretty effectively. I, I think they, they don't get enough credit for that. Economists do it all the time. Um, but for the historian, the, the idea is to get it right in cooperation with all of your colleagues in this international community. And you know, that's one of the things about the New Books Network is you can see that international community on the New Books Network. I mean, here we all are, uh, thousands of us, you know, talking to one another about how to get the story right. Um, and you need to be prepared to be wrong, and you need to admit that you're wrong when you're wrong. Um, it's okay to be a little bit stubborn about that, 
that can be a good thing. A friend of mine calls this epistemic stubbornness. That's a good thing in many ways. But at a certain point, you have to say, well, okay, um, I, I, I may have gotten this incorrectly. And so I need to adjust. And, you know, that's the way knowledge traditionally grows is that we try and we fail and then we adjust and we try and we fail and we adjust. And, and it's important to maintain the integrity of that process. And I, I want to digress a little bit on Russia. You know, there's an organization called Memorial and th- this was set up in the seventies, I think, and, and it's a human rights organization, but they have a, a, an entire set of historians as well that, uh, you know, they study the Stalinist past and they try to bring the truth about the Stalinist past to Russia's, Russians. Uh, the Russian government recently closed it down. Um, that's a bad situation. And, and the reason that they said they closed it down was that they said that the people at Memorial were part of, a, they were agents of foreign powers. Well, in a way, they're not wrong. The foreign power in this case was the international scholarly community. <laughs> All of us who were saying, okay, this is actually what happened. And you need to tell people in your polity, this is what happened. Well, the Russian, you know, the Russian elite, that is Putin and everybody, can't deal with this. That's bad. You know, the same is true as China. I mean, massive fraud going on there about, about what happened, you know, in, in these earlier phases of, of, of communism under Mao and later, I, I think. And, and Chinese people don't know about that. That's bad. I mean, any time in which the truth really bothers you and you take steps to destroy this kind of self-correcting mechanism, which is the international code, that's a bad thing. And so what's happening in Russia right now, it's really, it's, it's a horrible thing for Russians because they'll be lied to about their past. And that's absolutely contrary to what we as this international scholarly community of foreign power without a navy or an army, um, what we try to do. Uh, and, and so, yeah, maintaining the integrity of that system, its institutions, its trust and expertise is very important. I mean, I, it strikes me that this is not unlike um, in the first uh, podcast, we talked a little bit about um, epistemic humility in a philosophical context, and that um, Socrates, the f- sort of famous first individual he knew that he didn't know, um, set off to challenge uh, institutions of power that were absolutely certain of their own beliefs. And uh, what's interesting is that what you talk about with the self-correcting mechanism of the international scholarly community or experts is that they have a built-in mechanism for uh, self-correction. But then they go after uh, institutions that have no self-corrective mechanism. Um, and they try to then correct them. And it shouldn't be confused. I mean, I think that experts oftentimes get called know-it-alls. But... Um, and they can be. I mean, I've known lots of experts who are also know-it-alls. But I think what um, should be remembered is that these experts, if they're actually experts, are committed to um, being wrong and to being open to being wrong themselves. Um, but then they have particular methods by which they work through these questions um, and do so communally, do so publicly, do so transparently. And I think that that's what I'm hearing um, in several of your stories is it's important to believe in the truth and to try to pursue it uh, and to be deeply suspicious of those institutions that already think that they have a corner on it. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's an ongoing process. I mean, every humanist or social scientist and surely scientist probably as well know that there are some problems that are just certifiably hard. There aren't really clear answers to these questions. Uh, and anybody that says that there is a clear answer to these questions, well, you've got to be suspicious of that person. Because, you know, again, the thing about experts is they've kind of earned a seat at the table because they've studied these things for a long time and they've learned uh, all of the sources, they've done all the tests and so on and so forth. So they know what they're talking about. Um, and, you know, they they understand that these problems are hard and and that there isn't really any real, an- there's no right answer to these some of these things, that, that, that there's no crucial test that you can perform that would give you a right answer to a lot of these problems. And that's that ambiguity is just something you have to live with um, and be respectful of. I think that living with ambiguity is um, something that is very difficult. Um, can you... Can you um, reflect maybe a little bit on um, how one lives with ambiguity and what sort of factors might um, lead one to balk at living with ambiguity? Well, I think that, you know, the most important thing, again, to go back to Socrates is you have to realize you don't know. Most of the, you know, the world is such an incredibly complicated place. I always give the example of the human cell. The human cell is like the most complicated thing you can imagine. It does completely magical things if you've ever taken cell biology. It's truly astounding how complicated every cell in any animal is. Uh, You could go on and on about it. Um, And we don't know everything about it. And we never will know everything about it. It's it's too deep and too complicated, and our understanding is is minimal. But, you know, you kind of have to muddle through. You know, you, you look for things that are effective, not necessarily right, but effective. And I, I'm kind of a pragmatist when it comes to these questions, like what works? Let's, let's focus on what works, not what's right. And I think if you look at it like that, then the ambiguity isn't so much of a problem. What works most of the time? We live in a probabilistic world. It's not going to work all the time. It's going to work some of the time because our knowledge is imperfect, as are we. So you, you want to try to aim toward what is right, and you want to try to achieve some sort of consensus among people who you trust and respect. And, you know, how does this go wrong? Well, it goes wrong in places like Stalinist Russia, where the government decides what's right, that, that, or, or even China today. That, that um, you know, that, that is never going to work. They impose a solution on a problem that does not have an easy, easy answer. Um, and, and this, of course, leads to all kinds of mendacity and 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 misinformation and and essentially lots of bad results. Nazi Germany is another example of this. Um, and that's in a sense what happens there is is the international scholarly community is disregarded uh, for political reasons. And when that happens, that's always it should bother all of us um, wherever it happens. Um, and, and so the imposition of a, of a set of ideas or a set of solutions or uh, to these problems, that that is something that should bother everyone, which is why this thing with Memorial really bothers me because these people are dedicated to finding about the truth about what happened in Stalinism. Is it a pleasant truth? No, it's really not. Uh, does it cast a good light on a lot of Russians? No, it really doesn't. But that that's just something you have to live with. Uh, that, that's the truth of the matter. And you have to live in a world where things are, are, are true. I think another way just to digress a little bit that it goes wrong is, 
uh, has to do with communications technologies, which is something I've studied a lot. And that is, you know, social media is great in many ways, but well, it's, it's great in the sense that everybody gets to have a voice, but it's also bad and everybody gets to have a voice. I, I, you know, I, I, so on Facebook and everywhere else, everybody's suddenly an expert on everything. Well, that's just false. They're just not. I mean, if you start asking me about epidemiology, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> what do I know about that? <laughs> but somehow I find myself writing a post about epidemiology on Facebook. That's just nuts. Um, you know, you should listen to people who are in this community and have been through all these ideas and and kind of come up with something that works. That is, in, in, they've reached a kind of consensus about what's right. That could be wrong. That's true. But, you know, the idea that everybody gets to have an opinion about everything and gets to express that opinion, that really muddies the waters. I, it, it, it is not helpful. Um, and, you know, again, I'm remembering back when I was at Grinnell College, I mean, the professor was the authority. The professor had studied things for a long time. She knew what she was talking about, and we did not. We had not earned the right really to talk about it. And, and, and I think that's an important consideration. You know, this is true when you deal with your plumber or your doctor. You're not telling your doctor what to do or your plumber what to do. Why should you tell an epidemiologist what to do? It's, it's nutty. <laughs> so uh, I think that, that the, especially social media, has, has damaged the reputation of expertise. I don't know about permanently, but it has badly damaged it um, because people are spouting off about things they don't know anything about. And I'm as guilty as this as anybody. Well, I try not to do it, but um, you know, it's a constant temptation to go out there and say, you know, oh, I think this. Well, you don't know. I mean, you're not. Why? What? What are your qualifications? I'm not a big credentialist, but you know, you should probably listen to your plumber who's done plumbing for 20 years, not try to fix your pipes yourself. Um, yeah, I, I think I was thinking that you know, listening to both of you guys here, that that. The problem in a way seems to be that the definition of expert and expertise has kind of veered off into a kind of weird direction in which being an expert means having all the answers instead of having the questions. But really what being an expert is about is knowing how to formulate and explore questions. It isn't about having answers to things. And I, I noticed this over and over with the, the pandemic and all of the, you know, people would get upset about the fact that, well, They've changed the rules about what we should do with masks or this or that. Well, that's because the context has changed. Our knowledge has changed and we have different questions and different ideas about what to do. And what I saw with that was just a marked lack of understanding what expertise actually means. It means that you never stop asking questions. You don't think you've just got an answer. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. And it can be recapitulated across tons of fields, about tons of 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 questions. And, and again, you run into these, the, the, the epidemic is interesting because we have to act in real time. It's not an academic exercise. And so it's particularly tough because we don't, we've never really encountered anything like this, at least in modern times, you can talk about the Spanish flu or something, but never really encountered something quite like this. It's no wonder that we don't know what to do. <laughs> How could we know what to do? <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's 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 important to understand that we're muddling through and to trust one another and trust people who have been trained and have studied and understand the complications that are involved in setting any academic discipline, and especially when it's, this one's practical, not academic. I mean, this is serious. People could die. Um, should you have blind faith in them? Well, of course not. But they do deserve a certain amount of trust, right? We give them this task. 
and and we need to you know you know we need to think about what they do and what they ask us to do but a certain amount of trust i think is very important and i think we're losing that trust mm-hmm. why do you think we're losing that trust you know, I, I don't I don't really have a good answer to that question, except to say, you know, this will seem somewhat facile, but and it largely has to do with the way journalism has changed. Uh, and I think there's kind of an economic explanation for this. It's very hard to do journalism and make it pay for itself anymore. And so one of the things we discovered by publishers is that if you go hard political, you can get a group of people that will pay for it. And, you know, we've we've seen uh the major journalistic organs become more and more political or entirely political where they take a side. This is an, you know, it's, it's not completely, it's not unique and it's not totally unusual in the American context, but, but it's much more like in, in Europe where political parties have newspapers, right? We never had that in the United States, but now we kind of do. I mean, you, you know, if you're a Democrat, where to go to get your news, you know, if you're a Republican, where to go get your news, if you're a Christian conservative, you go there and get your news. That's not good. Uh, but economically speaking, it's one way for these organizations to pay the bills. Um, what's unfortunate, I think, and those things are fine, uh, you know, sort of, party platform organs. But what's unfortunate, I think, is is that major news organizations like the New York Times or any major city newspaper have been kind of sullied by this and drawn into it. Not not drawn into it in the sense that they are overtly biased, but since they can go on Vox or CNN or Fox, they think all of them are like that, but they aren't. You know, the major city newspapers are not like that. Um, you know, the, the Atlantic or the New Yorker, or the New York Times, they're not like that. The Wall Street Journal, they're not like that. They really do have this, you know, they, they want to tell the truth um, as best they can. Whether Fox and CNN, I don't know what they're doing, but they're trying to pay the bills. That's what they're trying to do. Um, and they found a way to do it, which is okay. That's good. But I I think that, you know, this, this is, a, you know, people don't remember this, but there was a kind of a bellwether moment. Now bellwether is the wrong metaphor, but like when Craigslist started, like Craig Newmark did not start out thinking I'm going to gut journalism by taking away classified ad money from newspapers. That wasn't his idea. <laughs> he wanted to, you know, that you could go and sell your stuff easy. And that He did that, but it turned out it had a horrible economic consequence and journalism became very hard to do uh, w- without, uh, appealing to some sort of preconceived set of political ideas. Again, I don't know if any of this is correct. It's just kind of my gut um, that, that well, this has happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly think when I watch the the network news and, and Marshall, you and I are more or less the same age. Um, I, I think back to growing up in the sixties and seeing Walter Cronkite there. And, you know, I, I'm not going to argue that that was just totally unbiased reporting, but on the other hand, you really did feel like he was simply telling you what happened and you didn't get a lot of, of editorializing on that. Of course, in any kind of reporting, people are picking and choosing what, what to say is what happened, but the environment's very different now. Uh, I turn on... Yeah, I was going to say there are degrees in bias. I mean, this is like yes. many phenomena. It is continuous. And uh, there, there's no question that 
the degree of bias is greater than it was in the era of, of Walter Cronkite. At least that's my impression. Again, we probably should have an expert on to tell us whether this is true. I don't know, but I, I believe that is, I believe that is correct. When I read the guardian, I know what I'm going to get. That's not good. <laughs> when I read the New York times, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to get. That's good. I like that more. <laughs> I have a sort of related question. Uh, to what extent should we place the responsibility at the feet of professors or academics or the modern university for this um, sense that uh, anything goes and that it's best to polarize, um, it's best to take positions that uh, needn't be critically examined? Um, to what extent is it uh, the modern universities? fault or uh, modern capitalism or the conjunction of modern capitalism with universities. Um, I'm thinking a little bit about, you know, Alan Bloom's closing of the American mind in uh, 1986. And Bloom basically says that we've um, embraced cultural relativism to the place where truth doesn't mean anything anymore. And we've just given up on truth. And um, while I disagree with a number of Bloom's uh, premises in that book, uh, I'm also uh, concerned that he was uh, quite uh, visionary in uh, what has happened in our, quote, post-truth world. And so I'm wondering, could you say a little bit about academia and also about uh, the modern university? I, I, I don't think that academics are to blame for this polarization um, because I think if you look at what academics do, and I do every day on the New Books Network where we you know publish interviews about monographs, most of them are interested in finding the truth. They go and they research something for a very long time and they use sort of the standard techniques to do that. They look at the evidence, they draw conclusions from the evidence, they try to find more evidence, they figure out whether they were wrong, they adjust, they do it again. So the the way actual research works hasn't really changed, as far as I can tell from my vantage point. Um, you know, some of them have been drawn into these partisan political fights, but most of them haven't. I mean, I think most rank and file, you know, let's say medieval Europeanist just doesn't care. They care about, I don't know, you know, Michelangelo or something. I, they're they're just not interested in these things. They're interested in finding the truth about the Italian Renaissance. Um, so, so I think if you look at what they do, as opposed to what the partisan organs say they do, you find a very different picture. The, the people that we publish, they're just interested in finding out what happened, what is happening. You know, they 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 don't have obvious biases that I can see. They're really kind of you know at the coal face of knowledge. That's a good thing. Um, I, I also don't, you know, some people will say, well, there's all this censorship now in academia. I don't I don't know what they're talking about. I, I mean, I was a professor for a long time. Nobody ever told me what to study <laughs> or what to publish. Not ever for a minute, right? I, I, I studied wherever I wanted to study and I published wherever I wanted to publish. You know, when somebody, you know, a la Russia or a la China tells me what to study and what to say, call me up because that. <laughs> That's serious. But right now what we have is, a, I think, a, a, a really good debate going on about these things. And, um, and scholars can inform that debate by doing, you know, essentially research uh, into, you know, just to give one example. I mean, so 
um, you know, these Confederate monuments in the South, this was a few years ago, you know, what to do about these things. Well, you know, historians are very important there because they were able to tell us where these monuments came from. And they did it without bias or anything. It's like, okay, well, this monument was built then by these people. This was their interest. This was the artist. You know, here's a bunch of facts about where these monuments came from. I thought that was very interesting. It really informed what I thought about them. Um, and that was, you know, that was a great contribution to the, the ongoing debate about whether we should keep these these monuments. So I, I thought they did good work there. I guess I'm I guess I'm concerned a little bit about the way that um, my students or students today in the modern university are being taught, and it seems to me that many of the academics and many of the professors at universities are more interested in finding the truth in their own unique disciplines than, for example, um, teaching teaching the next generation of students the critical skills that they need to move forward. That's my own, uh, I'm young, I, I guess I'm relatively young here, but I'm concerned about that. And I don't want to sound jaded, but I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the way that tenure operates and I'm looking at the way that um, scholarship is oftentimes prioritized over uh, teaching and I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I, again, I've been out of academia for a long time now, so I can't really speak to that. What I can speak to is the quality of research that we, we publish on the network. And it's it's almost uniformly of, of great quality. These are people that have devoted tons of time to, to studying things that are reasonably esoteric, and they do it you know, without passion and without bias. At least I think that they mostly do. Um, and hopefully when they're wrong about something, they'll admit they're wrong. Their colleagues will be there to tell them that they're wrong. And you know, if you work in a in a business environment like I do now, I mean, you don't need people to tell you you're wrong. You have a bottom line. It tells you you're wrong. <laughs> like, I, it's, a, it's a real self-correcting mechanism. Like, I want the New Books Network to survive because I think we do good work, pursue our public, you know, our mission of public education. Like, I get a lot of feedback from listeners and hosts and guests, and I have to listen to those people because, you know, they... They are part of the entire enterprise, so I can't really I, I can't really address the question because I've been out for so long. Yeah, I think the um, one of the problems that has developed is that the the process, as John was talking about, you know, for example, the the tenuring process has become so oriented around the number of things you do or the place you publish or something like this, rather than um, kind of the the depth of quality of the work and often. I think often that just isn't a major part of what's happening. And then the other problem is there's a, just a strong emphasis on that, the quantity of publication and much lower emphasis on teaching and the quality of teaching. Of course, this varies by institution. It depends on, you know, I'm, I think John and I both teach at research institutions. And so there are certain kinds of expectations there, but um, you know, when you have classes with 300 people in it, it's kind of hard to teach critical thinking skills. And um, that's some of that's the economics of the university. And, and um, that has a way of shaping, you know, the, the way we go about kind of constructing what we're trying to get across to the students. Um, well, a, f- a friend of mine had a good quip. He said, everybody loves critical thinking until somebody actually does it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't something like it anymore. Yeah, yeah. They don't like it anymore. It's not. Yeah. 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 But I think if you go to an academic conference or things like this, you're going to see lots of critical thinking. You're going to see people politely disagree and try to move forward. And, you know, again, the seminar room is different than Facebook. You know, it has rules. And those rules are important to the advancement of knowledge. Trying to do any sort of, you know, sort of serious conversation on Facebook, that's just a non-starter. It's not going to happen. 
uh, because the rules will not be followed and the people that should be listened to will not be listened to. There's no uh, authority. Everybody's liking, like I like things, you know, and, and, you know, the like button, that, that was, it was kind of a catastrophe because that's what chimps do. It's called gesturing, right? It's not thought, it's not deliberation, it's not interpretation, it's gesturing. It's thumbs up, thumbs down. That's not thinking. That's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great observation. I, you know, that the, the, the academic climate, even if we have issues, there are rules about how the discourse unfolds and, and expectations about the openness we have to disagreeing and, and exchanging ideas. And those rules are just out the window on social media. It's just, yeah, yeah. they are, they are. And then you're not going to be allowed in certain of these partisan political organs because you don't toe the line. And and that's not particularly good either. But, you know, we were talking earlier, there are publications that are devoted to finding the truth and and that's a good thing. Um, You know, and that's not truth with a capital T it's with a small T because we're never going to reach the truth, but it's a process of, sort of slowly working toward a consensus understanding of what corresponds with reality. And, and if that's what we mean by the truth, it seems like every scholar in this international scholarship community is kind of devoted to that. Like that, that's really what we're after here. And part of that means recognizing when you're wrong about things. I think, uh, I mean, I, I was thinking a little bit about your comment earlier about pragmatism and about truth as what works. And um, I think that pragmatism often, I'm I'm a pragmatist too, and um, study pragmatism from the philosophical point of view. And um, pragmatists have often been criticized for the claim that truth is what works because um, people say, well, truth is what works for whom? And uh, it's just a crass instrumentalism. But I don't think that that's the case. And I think the comments that you've been making make that really clear that um, that uh, the idea that truth is what works is looking for ever broader consent consensus or or spheres of interpretation. That's what C.S. Peirce would call truth in the long run. And the, the little T truths that we have in the interim between here and the long run are important to get us like along the way. Um, but we're, we're looking for broader consensus, broader interpretation. And that's why, I mean, folks like John Dewey have an idea of inquiry connected to an idea of democracy. And um, which isn't simply just uh, mass uh, you know, mass acquiescence or mass, uh, uh, you know, thumbs up liking, uh, but rather some really um, engaging critical dialogue among individuals and ever wider spheres um, of people. So yeah, I would agree with that. consensus is a very important concept in all of this because uh, it's really how you become more certain of what you believe when other people who you trust also believe it and they have reasons for believing it and they convince you that this is true. I mean, if you think about human behavior in broad strokes, there are really only three ways to influence somebody. Uh, You got your carrots, you got your sticks, and then you got words. Mm. We use words. (laughs) They are really sometimes very unsatisfying you have to convince somebody, no carrots, no sticks, just words. That's tough. Um, and it's, it's, it can be a painful process for, for, for many ways. It takes a long time to emerge. 
Um, but then once it does, you know, and everybody realizes they're kind of on the same team here, then it can be a very gratifying thing. Like, okay, we, we think we, we think we have this figured out now and we can go forward. Maybe we're wrong. That's okay. And if there are dissenting voices, that's great. You want dissenting voices because, you know, as John Stuart Mill taught, that's how you learn new things. Um, but you've reached this kind of uh, an interim consensus. It's never permanent. It, it always changes. I mean, and this is true in historical disciplines too, where you know, you'd think that X question would have been decided a long time ago, but it isn't. And it won't ever be probably because it's too complicated. Uh, it, the world is a very complicated place. Any given historical event is very complicated. Uh, and you can't just say, oh, this is what happened. You know, the Civil War was about slavery. Well, kind of, but kind of not. And there, there are about a million words you could say after that, all of which are sensible and inform a, a dialogue about the American Civil War. Uh, and you should say those words. Again, it's, it's a long, painful process. Um but that, that's what we have to do if we want to reach this consensus and depth of understanding. Well, I think that, and that actually kind of, kind of brings us back to, you know, Marshall, your, your big mistake. But in a sense, it isn't a mistake because you threw out there a perspective and it turned out that that's not the way things were. It could have turned out that it was the way things went. It's not impossible. And that's in part because we live in a place that is constantly changing and we can't predict the flow of the change very well because all of these ideas are coming into play and interacting and it's it's really too complex as you as you put it to to really grab a hold of it and say yep this is the direction it's all going to go so those mistakes are actually quite valuable because we look at them and we can look back at it and say well no that was wrong why was it wrong what did what thinking went into this that led us down the wrong path and why did it go this path and so i think to me, that's actually kind of at the core of what we should be doing as, as scholars and intellectuals is, is well, constantly I think it, raising I, that. I think you make a great point and caused me to reflect on the way when I make judgments, the way in which the contemporaneous environment of opinion shapes me, because I was clearly kind of caught up in this, finally, it's over, the Russians are going to be free, Russia's going to be Sweden, and, and I didn't realize it at the time. I, I, I thought I was thinking I was on the right side of history, but I didn't, I didn't know what the right side of history was. And I didn't exercise the epistemic humility that I should have in that moment. Could I have done differently? Maybe. I don't know. But it's certainly instructive to look back on it and think, hmm, why, why did I do that? Why did I think those things? And how can I, how can I uh, armor myself or guard myself against making similar misjudgments? that affect, you know, a lot of people's lives. Um, and that's the kind of core of epistemic humility. And it's that, you know, the Buddhists are very good on this. Everything is always changing. I mean, really always changing. Like, no, like empirically, everything is always changing. <laughs> like down to the molecular level, everything is changing. And there's a lot of everything. And so you've got to live in that world where you don't know. You can kind of take stabs at it in a pragmatic way, and you should do that. We're equipped for that. Um, but don't ever think that you've got truth with capital T, because you don't. In your experience, um, both as a historian, but then also in um, corporate life, can you say anything about the way that fear plays into um, 
a lack of epistemic humility? I think a lot of people are afraid of being wrong. And that's because uh, in certain environments, it's very costly to be wrong. And that's something we want to change. I think, you know, in, in Stalinist Russia, you didn't want to be wrong because you could get shot. You know, I, I just read this great biography of Vasily Grossman, who pointed out some very uncomfortable truths about Stalinism. He wasn't shot, but he was certainly persecuted uh, for his beliefs. And he was fearful. Uh, and so the things that he said were not published in their own time. The people who might have published them were fearful that if the truth got out, they would get in trouble. They wouldn't have a good exit. And they're probably right about that because they've been lying for so long. Uh, and so that environment where you're fearful of, of saying something that might get you in trouble um, or might even cost you your livelihood, which we've seen recently, uh, that, that's a very dangerous place to be. Because what it evidences is this is a notion that you're not on the same team. You should be on the same team. You should congratulate a scholar when they say, I was wrong. You should take them out for a drink <laughs> and you should applaud them for admitting what is a mistake. Not a mistake, you know, a simple mistake, like not crossing your T's, but, you know, something that the consensus has now determined that their earlier position is now incorrect, and it should go into the historiographical chapter of the next book written on the topic. That's a good thing. That, 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 uh, that's a good habit. And so the, the, the fear portion of it is, it, 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 I mean, we're lucky in the United States, I think, that, that most people don't feel that fear that they do now in Russia or they do in China. Whereas if you say the wrong thing, it could have really horrible consequences for you. Uh, but but here, you know, I think we understand that that especially in this international community of scholars that I keep talking about, that we know it's okay to be wrong. It's a fine thing. You know, that's how we advance. We we put things forward. We look at the evidence. They're wrong. We go to the next hypothesis. That's a good thing. And that's that process that we I think we want to protect. Thanks for that. So what do you think, John? Do we have any more questions for Marshall? I'm very happy. I think it's been uh, a nice hour. A fabulous conversation. Marshall, do you have anything you want to add? Um, no, I don't think so. I want to thank you guys for starting this podcast. It's something I thought about doing for a long time, and I would encourage anybody listening to this to contact John and John, the two Johns. If you you know have a similar sort of story about how you got something wrong and how you dealt with it and why you got it wrong, I would encourage you to contact them, and I'm sure they will have you on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Marshall. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks Marshall. for joining us, Marshall. Yeah, sure. All right. Bye-bye. Take care.